Why don't you guys open up to Isaiah chapter 8? We're going to jump back a little bit into what we talked about last week, and that will give us a little bit of context as we move forward this week. I'm going to be in Isaiah 8.16. I want you to look up at the screen here, and I want you guys to fill in this uh, phrase. I hope blank. Many things might come to mind, but as I look at this phrase, I realize that it's a very odd phrase in our culture. In our culture, it means the power of positive thinking. You ever realize that? The word hope is something that means wanting something to be the case. Our, hope in the, our, our word hope in the English carries with it this uncertain expectation of the outcome. And so it's really interesting when we use the word hope. This morning, when I got here with the trailer, I watched Matt Califf. Thank you, Matt, for driving the uh, first trailer down. But uh, I watched him drive down this slope with the trailer behind him. And I came yesterday to check it out to make sure everything was somewhat safe to get in here for church. And uh, I slid in my two-wheel drive getting out of the driveway, right? So I was a little bit worried this morning that Matt coming down the hill, uh, I don't know if he's going to make it. He might jackknife. I might jackknife. And so I hoped that we would make it, right? I hoped that we would. There was uncertain expectation along with it. The most hopeful among us, we, we look at this uncertain expectation and we hope anyways. And we are the Pollyannas in the room. There are some of you, and I could look at you directly because I know who you are. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be the, the positive one in the room, the Pollyanna. But we have to recognize and realize that when we say hope in our language, what it means is I'm not certain of how it will turn out. And then sometimes when hope fades, we begin to totally lose it because we recognize that there's no way for what we hope for to come to pass, right? Okay. I hope that I can get back to my 25-year-old body. That's probably not going to happen, right? I hope that uh, I can stop hitting my head on uh, doorways as I grow older. Well, it's probably not going to happen, right? There are certain things we say we hope for, but we know that the outcome is not going to actually be there, and so we, in fact, lose hope. And this is really where we're at in the text today, is that Ahaz, in the story here, they had put their hope in worldly things, temporal things, things that, that passed very quickly. And while it brought them hope in the moment, eventually they realized no more could be done. And they had to give themselves up to the enemy. Their enemies of Israel and Syria were defeated, but breathing down their necks was the even bigger enemy of Assyria. And they were coming quickly. And they, like many of us, as we talked about last week, had misplaced confidence. They had put their security in the wrong things, their confidence in the wrong things. And therefore, their hope was in the wrong things. And many of us have done the same thing. We've put, their, put our confidence in, in things that pass and that are quick and that don't really last. And so when those things don't come to pass as strong as we wanted or as, uh, in as much uh, uh, power as we wanted, we start to lose hope. And we fall into that same trap that our early father and mother, Adam and Eve, stepped into, which is this question of, can I trust God? Is God trustworthy? Is he good? You have to realize that that was really what happened in the garden was Satan brought in this idea, can you really trust this God? Does he have your best interest in mind? And so when hope starts to fade, hope as we define it, we start to wonder, is God good? Can I trust him? But what we'll see today as we look to the text in front of us is that the reality of Jesus of Nazareth provides us with a hope that doesn't fit into that category. It's a hope that is actually assured. 
It's a hope with an outcome that we know, and it is the only hope that we know. If you watch Star Wars, you think Obi-Wan is the only hope, right? Help us. You're our only hope. Well, the reality is for us, for humanity, for creation, is that the only hope is Jesus Christ. And the amazing part about what Scripture tells us is that he is a hope assured. He is a hope that is assured. And this is what I want us to focus on today because I think we find hope in many things in life. And that's not bad. But I think the core of what a Christian is, the core of what uh, the Bible has been calling a believing remnant, is that we have a hope that is assured and we live our lives in light of that fact. So as we begin today, let's look back at Isaiah 8.16 and we're going to catch up a bit on where we were last week. And Isaiah has just once again tried to get Ahaz to believe in God and and put himself in, in God's hands, but Ahaz refuses. He's made an alliance with Assyria and now Assyria is coming for Ahaz and all of Judah. And God steps in and says to Isaiah, they're done. They've decided who they're going to align with. And he says to him, do not think or act like them, but act differently. And God, through Isaiah, begins to compare two groups of people here in verse 16. And he's going to show us this. You can write this down this morning. He's going to show us the contrast of hope assured. He's going to show us the contrast of hope assured versus hope that is not assured. And he's going to do it with two groups of people. So let's take a look at 8.16. He says to Isaiah, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Remember, his children were named in ways that showed prophecy. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, or people that go after the dead, the the seances, that kind of thing, who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now remember, when this was originally written, there was no chapter break. There were no verse breaks. This was all one section. And so we can take chapter 9 and put it in the context of chapter 8 and see what he's talking about. And what we're going to see in this whole section is a contrast and comparison of these two groups of people. Now here's what I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them the believing remnant and the fickle masses. The believing remnant and the fickle masses. The first thing that we see is we see the comparison of where their authority comes from, who they turn to for wisdom, for authority. For the fickle masses, they turn to the authority of self. In one moment, they want to fight against Assyria. The next moment, they want to align with them. The next moment, they want to def- uh, defeat them again. It doesn't matter what's going on. The, the authority is always themselves. 
But the immediate response that God shows, the, the comparison that God shows with the believing remnant is this, is that there is authority for the believing remnant, and it comes from one place. It comes from God's teaching, spe- specifically the Torah. When he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching, the word there in the Hebrew for teaching is Torah. It means teaching, instruction. We, we've uh, translated in the English a lot to law. And that sounds uh, almost negative in our culture. The reality is is the Torah is instruction in righteousness. It's teaching the character of God. And so twice in verse 16 and 20, it says that the believing remnant has their authority coming from the word of God. The next thing that we see in the comparison is that we see that the fickle masses wait for nothing. They want it their way and they want it right now. Does that sound like a culture we know all too well? They want the microwave response. They want everything to happen on their timeline in their way, and they're not willing to wait for anything. But the believing remnant, the believing remnant, as it says in verse 17, is this, I will wait for the Lord. Now, again, I, I need to make a little tweak here because I think when a lot of us read this, we're waiting for the Lord to do what we want him to. How many of you would agree with that? That's kind of how you tend to read this. Yeah, that's okay. The reality is, is I will wait for the Lord on his time. Here's the scary part about this section of scripture, guys. How many of these people that were alive when Isaiah spoke this, how many of them saw their faith become sight? None. In fact, they lived their entire life in fear in the midst of battle, not a good situation. When Isaiah is saying, I will wait for the Lord, he is thinking to an eternal future. And he's saying, Lord, I will let my life be in your hands. There's a different mentality of the believing remnant. Well, this different mentality has different outcomes. And so we see here, for the fickle masses, the outcome is gloom of anguish. The brokenness, the heartache, the hurt in their life, it just simply sits as nothing more than gloom of anguish. This is what it says there right at the, the very end uh, of that first, uh, first paragraph, verse 22. They will look to the earth, they will look to the things around them to bring them joy, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. For the believing masses, however, as we will see in the rest of this section, they will get joy and victory. But Hans, I thought you just said that they lived their life in the exact same circumstances. Yes, they did. And it wasn't just a mind trick that gave them joy and victory. It was the knowledge, the reality of the fact that God is the one who has an all-powerful plan that will work out over time. And they put their entire bet on that fact. The fickle masses, they had hope that's in the world. They hoped in things in the world, but the believing remnant, they had hope that was in the Lord. He says it right there at the beginning. He says, I will hope in him. Now again, remember, the believing remnant and the fickle masses, they did not live in two separate areas. Okay? This is what the church has tried to do, a lot of the church, for a long time. We, we, we want to get our property, build our building, have this little bubble in the midst of a society where people can flee to the bubble of Christianity. Guys, that's not at all what this is talking about. 
The fickle masses and the believing remnant, they sat in the middle. They had to fight against the same enemy. They got killed with the same spears. Their wives were raped by the same men. This was a terrible situation, and the believing remnant and the fickle masses were right next to each other. And these were the folks in the midst of a potential invasion at any point in time, but the difference was the believing remnant had a hope that was assured by the word of Isaiah. All of their supplies were cut off. The army was coming and bringing darkness with them. But it's in these moments, these moments of utter darkness, when both the fickle masses and the believing remnant are looking at the same thing, that that hope assured shows the difference of what makes the believing remnant the believers. And the fact is, is it isn't this fake hope that just dismisses what's in front of them. It's a hope that is realistic first and foremost. It's a hope that sees the brokenness in front of them. And without seeing that brokenness, true hope, hope that's assured, the hope of Jesus Christ, it won't affect the world. Many of us as Christians, we go around thinking that we have to have hope. And in fact, what we have hope in is hope. Now, I know I sound like a, a, a bad pun here, but many Christians simply have hope in hope. There's an entire industry built on it. There's coffee mugs, there's radio stations, there's social media. We are hoping in hope, not a hope that's assured. And so the first thing that we have to have when we're talking about the true hope that is assured, the hope that never goes away, is we have to talk about the realism, the realism of hope assured. You see, the light shines in the the brightest in the darkest background. And you'll notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 9 that this was not a good situation. This was bad. Notice what it says there. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. These people that are being talked about here were in the exact same situation as those who had gloom of anguish. So he says for one group of people, that fickle masses, they will just have gloom of anguish. But for the other ones, the believing remnant, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Notice both of them have anguish. Both of them have anguish. You guys ever notice this, that we as Christians try to dismiss anguish quickly because we're uncomfortable with it? We hate sitting in anguish. But here's what's interesting. I want you guys to take this. I said this last week, but I, I don't think it made an impact on you that I was hoping for. Do you realize that there are different types of psalms? And the type that has the most number of psalms in it are the psalms of lament. Do you realize that? Lament itself can be and is worship. Now, that is completely contrary to the American mindset. We believe that if we are not happy and go lucky and smiling all the time, that we are not giving God the glory and honor due his name. Now, I would submit to you that we also can't be melancholy all the time. I'm a Christian. Oh, boy, life is terrible. No, nobody's going to want to follow you then, right? But at the same time, we have to realize that hope assured is realistic. Jesus had a very real view of the world that he was coming into. It was a world that needed him. It was a world that was broken and oppressed, and it needed someone to free people from the oppression. 
You see, the people that are talked about here are people that live up in this part of Israel. If you look at the big purple area there, that's East Manasseh. And just to the left is the land of Nephtali. And then just down to the southwest a little bit is Zebulun. This was the area that would get invaded first. Zebulun and Naphtali were like the hockey goalie that could never stop the puck. Okay? They were the people that always got invaded first. And so the entire country of Israel, they hated Zebulun and Naphtali. And to add to this, they were also known as, if you look at the uh, last part there, Galilee of the nations. That word nations is the word goyim in Hebrew, and it's translated in some of your Bibles to Gentiles. They were known as the place of mixture. And for a righteous Jew, a Jew who mixed with the Gentiles to the north was bad, bad, bad. And so the people in that area, the people of the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, right around the Sea of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee there, they were known as those people you don't want to be around. And so these people knew nothing but invasion, prejudice, racism. To be in this land was not a good thing. And this, this was where Jesus decided to start his invasion. This is where Jesus decided to come to. You know, if Jesus were going to invade Portland, would he invade in the Pearl District? The cool place? Or would he invade in one of those areas that nobody knows about? Right? When we look at this section, we realize these were people in contempt. Their life was not good. Let me show you another map here. This is a map of what's called the Via Maris. It's the way of the sea, which is what's referenced here in Isaiah. Down uh, kind of off the page here a little bit is what's called the King's Highway, and it comes from all the rest of the countries down into the Levant or Israel and, and the surrounding areas. And then there's a road that branches off, and it goes right by the Sea of Galilee, down through Megiddo, uh, down through Gezer, uh, onto to the south of the country. And it's called the Via Maris or the Way of the Sea. And up there by the Sea of Galilee, this is where the majority of massive battles in Israel happened. Uh, in the land of Megiddo, everybody from Napoleon all the way on back came to take over the land and they fought their armies, uh, they fought the armies of Israel in Megiddo. And this is where the last big battle of the world will happen, what's known as the, Valley, uh, or the, the Battle of Armageddon. But this was an area that was not a good place. You didn't grow up here thinking, life is good. You didn't have a bumper sticker on your car that said, life is good. You lived in brokenness and destruction, and what you needed was you needed hope. You needed a hope that was assured. And hope that was just hope that wasn't assured was not something that the, these people could grab onto. And for the fickle masses of Israel with Assyria breathing down their neck, coming down this road, literally, they wanted peace in their circumstances, and there was none. They couldn't find it, so the fickle masses had nothing to bring these people. Isaiah steps up, and he says to them, wait a minute, for those of you that want to believe in Yahweh, that want to follow our God, that live in the exact same situation, acknowledge the anguish of the moment. Know that the anguish is here right now. And that's what it says. For her who was in anguish, See, to dismiss the anguish around us and the brokenness of this world is not to bring the hope of Jesus. It's to give people a false hope. It's to say to them that 
We can just hope and hope. And that's going to let people down. But what Isaiah was saying is we have a hope that's assured. As the believing remnant, we don't become fickle in the ups and downs of life, the false hopes in the things around us in the moment. But we have a hope that is assured. It's interesting, as I do more and more study in psychology, one of the things that actually makes people extremely sick mentally is when they start to dismiss reality. True insanity is the complete dismissal of reality, right? When I get up here on a Sunday and I go, I am Napoleon, right? And I actually mean it, I have completely dismissed reality. That means I've got major mental health issues, okay? The more a person dismisses reality, the more their brain has to fight to kind of tweak things and make things actually fit into that reality. And eventually you break. You all have heard that phrase, a break from reality. What Christ wants to bring us is not a break from reality of a hope in hope, just being positive, cheery people. He wants to bring us the reality, the assured reality that hope is coming into that which, in which we have anguish. And so I want to encourage you this morning to grasp onto the anguish and to use it as worship. To see our brother Jean go through something as horrific as his church building being firebombed by Boko Haram. And to not dismiss it and go, oh, gee, let's just get back to the Christmas spirit. No. To engage it. And to say, this is the reality of why Christmas is here. This is the reality of why Jesus came. And to present to people not a dismissal of their problems, but an engagement with their problems. To say, it is because of the brokenness in your life that you need the hope assured of Jesus Christ. That is why Isaiah gave this prophecy to that believing remnant, those believing few. He wanted to tell them, don't just have hope in hope. Have hope in hope assured. Have hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. And if we look at the background of the text before us, that's what was going on. These people were about to go through the worst time probably in their life. There was killing and rape and pillaging and exile coming. Those that stayed would be put under oppression from the king far away in Assyria. But the believing remnant were to be in the midst of that brokenness and were to provide a light to the world that says to them, you can have hope. And that hope may not be here immediately, but that hope is assured. The believing remnant has a hope that's assured. And this is the realism of hope assured that we bring the people around us. I have met with so many people over the last five years in the midst of uh, pastoral care that have told me, I had this really well-meaning Christian friend that came to me and said, oh, you'll make it through, you'll make it through, it'll be okay, and then the cancer never went away. Or the person that left me never came back. And they were let down by that false hope, that false, you'll be okay. These people were not going to be okay in the temporary. But what they were going to be okay with was that they were in the hand of a loving father who had a plan that passed what they saw in the temporary and gave them a hope assured for eternity. See, what I want to give you this Christmas is I want to give you something that doesn't just make you crash on the 26th. Right? You guys ever have that feeling? 
I know that when I was a kid, man, you ramp up, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You sit there with your, your Lego manual or whatever it is, the catalog, right? For me, it was back in the days, JCPenney catalog, right? I stared at the Legos that I wanted. I wanted those things so bad. I was like the kid in Christmas Story that would hide pictures of it underneath my mom's pillow, right? I want the Lego racetrack, man, and I would gear up for it, and then it would come, and I'd run out in the morning, and I'd look at the tree, and where is it? Where is it? Oh, there's a big package, and I'd rip into it, and there it was, and I finally achieved what I was hoping for, and then I put it together, and then I went and did something else. I played with it for maybe a day, and then the 26th comes, and you wake up in the morning, and you realize it's 364 more days until hope comes again. But see, the reason that Christmas came, the reason that Christ came, was to not bring us something that just was there with the passing of lights and mistletoe and trees. These are all wonderful things, and we glory in them. But what he came to bring was a hope that is assured 365 days a year. And I think the world even though the world is full of non-believing people, they grasp onto this hope because in the midst of the darkest time of the year, what do you see everywhere? You see lights. That's why people hang lights on their house, guys. It's because this is the season of light. Light was brought into the world that gave us a reason for hope that is assured. And these people in their darkest moments were told, it may not seem like it, but you have a hope that is assured. Next, we look at this, the reason for the hope assured. The reason for the hope assured. Let's take a look at chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We have discussed the last few weeks the idea that we, as Christians, must line up our expectations with what God has actually promised. Most of our conflict with God, in fact, all conflict arises out of unspoken, misaligned expectations. And so many of us, in our anger or our frustration with God, it's because we have unspoken, misaligned expectations that he should be providing us with something or doing something in our lives when he has never stated or promised or covenanted that he would do those things. But what we have before us here today are four very specific promises that God has given this world. 
And these are the promises that bring us hope that's assured in the midst of a very broken and dark world. The first one you can write down is this. You can write down, light will triumph over darkness. Light will triumph over darkness. This group of people that Isaiah is speaking to were constantly under threat of invasion. They lived in darkness. Isaiah comes to tell them it may not feel like it right now, but light will triumph over the darkness. You know, it's so amazing. I don't know if I'm just uh, still recovering at 37 years old from a fear of darkness or what, but man, it's good when light comes. This morning when I got up and I went and got in the car and drove to get the trailer, it was dark and cold and freezing fog, and I thought, oh man, this is awful. I can hardly wait until the light comes, right? When I've gone scuba diving and I go super deep and it's so dark around you as you come back up to the surface and you see that little orb in the sky kind of showing through the water, you think, oh, I'm almost to the surface. The light has almost come. Light always brings joy. It always brings refreshment. Does our world need that right now? I think many of us spend too much time looking at the news, amen? (laughs) Too much time listening to talk radio, amen? And we are so focused on the here and now, but others of us, we have completely dismissed what's going on around us. And the tension that we as Christians live in is to acknowledge the broken world around us, but to realize that we live in the sure knowledge that light will triumph over the darkness. When you're sitting around the table with your in-laws and eating turkey and rejoicing in the discussion of politics, which I'm sure will come, (laughs) realize, guys, light will triumph over darkness. You can remind them, look, I know what it is right now. Never has been, never will be any better. But light will triumph over the darkness. Jesus is the light, and he's brought it to fight the darkness. The second thing that he assures us of is that victory will come over all creation. He says there in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. Again, this is the word that comes from Goyim, the Gentiles. You have increased the nation of Israel. Why? By By inviting in the Gentiles. The ones who were condemned and were told, you're not part of us, have been brought in and the Lord has made us new. He's made us a new family that has both Jew and Gentile. It's amazing how much darkness and brokenness and racism and crud there still is in the world. It is amazing that we're still dealing with this in 2016, but what the Lord says is the Lord is going to make one new family of all creation in which he will bring victory over all hatred, all brokenness, all racism, because he's the creator over all the earth, and all the earth will rejoice with great joy that he has come. Third, what he's going to do is he's going to bring freedom for the oppressed. He's going to defeat the oppressor and bring freedom for the oppressed. In fact, he's already started to bring it, as we'll see in a second. Guys, remember that the God we serve didn't just show up first on Christmas. When you worship that baby that was born into a manger, you are worshiping the Exodus God. I want you to think about that when you look at the nativity. That was the God that, by the breath of his nostrils, parted the water to let his people go free and destroyed the oppressor. 
That was the God that brought the plagues upon the oppressor to say, you have no power in my world. And then he humbled himself to become a child wrapped in a manger. This is the God that we serve. We serve the Exodus God who came as a child not to just give us cute ornaments, but to give us an understanding that he is coming to do whatever it takes to free the oppressed. Now, do you realize that you and I are part of that oppressed? We're not as oppressed as a lot of the world, but we are still under the oppression of what? Of sin. Of the sin that we do, of the sin done to us, and God will come to defeat that. When you're sitting there in the midst of your family gatherings, and you see the brokenness in family relationships and family systems, I want to encourage you to remember that the oppression that is being shown in the midst of your family at that moment, it's going to be defeated. It's going to be taken care of by the Lord because he comes to free the oppressed. The last thing that we see, the fourth thing that we see in the midst of this section is this. We see a king ruling in justice and righteousness. The entire world is yearning for that. Not to talk about politics, but when you look at the world and you look at what's happening, the world is going crazy. From years ago in the midst of the Arab Spring to Brexit to what's going on in our country, people are crying out. They want something different. And they don't know what they want. And so they elect whatever is in front of them that's different than what's been there before. But the problem is, is that is not going to bring justice and righteousness. There is one person, one hope, that will bring justice and righteousness, and that is Jesus Christ. And we as Americans, this idea of having a king is very tough for us because we have pushed that aside. But the reality is, is that we were made to have a king. I was watching Chariots of Fire this week. Any of you ever seen Chariots of Fire? Okay, everybody needs to watch that movie. Number one, because it speaks to the importance of the Sabbath. Back in that day, the dude was willing to give up an Olympic medal to say Christians meet on the Sabbath. I'm all for that. Number two, there's this awesome scene. One of them is walking along with the the father of the main character who's a pastor, and he says to him, he says, so you have a king? And he says, oh, yeah, I do. And he says, sounds more like a dictator. And he responds and he says, oh, yes, he is a dictator, but he's one who dictates out of love and benevolence. We were made for someone to be in power over us. We were made for someone to, sub- to submit to that someone. And that someone is God, Jesus Christ, Yahweh. He is the one who we submit to because he is benevolent and loving and he will rule with justice and righteousness. How badly the world needs that. And we look at these things and we think, wow, light triumphing over darkness, victory over all creation, the killing of hatred, freedom for the oppressed, a king ruling in justice and righteousness for all peoples, not just the select few. Does this look good to you? Okay, everybody's asleep this morning. Does this look good to you? You realize that, that when you proclaim the goodness of Christmas, this is what you're talking about, right? This is why Christmas is Christmas. Not the presents, not the tree, not the mistletoe, not the lights, not the cool little stuffed animals that, you know, shake and rattle and have the jingle bells, right? 
We have some of those too. I love those. This is why Christmas is Christmas. You know, it's so brokenhearted. I'm so brokenhearted the last couple of Christmases because you ever notice that a lot of the nonprofits around Christmas, they believe that hope is in giving someone a present? Have you noticed that lately? Now, there's nothing wrong with this, okay? So don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that they're doing a wrong thing because we ourselves participate in this. But that present should be leading to a different thing. It should be pointing to the correct hope. I even heard a, uh, a radio spot this morning as I was driving in. As we give that child a present, we're giving them hope. Now, that is partially true. Someone is telling them you're loved, and that's what we as a church do. But guys, if it ends there, if it ends with the present, we've missed the entire point of Christmas. This is what Christmas is about. The light triumphing over the darkness. Now, how can we be assured of this reality? Right there in verse 6, take a look at it. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And we all think, yeah, that's Jesus, of course. This is what Christmas is talking about. No, I want to frame this for you because remember, the reason for the hope assured is Jesus of Nazareth. The reason that this isn't just hoping in hope or having a positive attitude or positive outlook is that the reason this is assured is Jesus Christ. He came, he died, he resurrected, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. It is the very testimony of our faith. And for these Jews, it wasn't just, oh, cool, right? There's going to be this awesome holiday that comes along with this baby being born. No, in fact, the Bible says nothing about celebrating the birth of this, this child. Do you realize that? Christmas is not mandated in the Bible. What we did is we took over a pagan holiday and said, let's try and make it more towards Jesus. Well, that's good. But here's what they saw. Here's the first thing they saw. They saw that this child was the one that was spoken of two chapters earlier called Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us. When you're about to go up against the Assyrian army, it's a good idea to have God with you, right? And so this reminder, this idea of there will be a child that comes on the behalf of God, who is God himself, it was assurance to them that they had an eternal hope that could be assured. Not only that, they were also assured of this. In 2 Samuel seven sixteen. David was told, and your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. For the people in this time of Judah, they were looking at Ahaz and going, you're the last one, dude. The throne is done after you because Assyria is going to come in and wipe us out and there will be no throne anymore. Isaiah steps on the scene and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can be assured that God wasn't lying here, that his covenant promises are true because guess what? A child is born, a son. A son. One who is in the offspring of David will come and fulfill this promise. You can be assured of that. Did they see it? No, but the promise was there. And lastly, you go all the way back to Genesis, and this is what the Jews knew. They knew that this son to come, this child to come, would be the fulfillment of God's promise from Genesis 3.15 on. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, those of the believing remnant. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The wording in this in the SV is not great. He will crush your head is really the wording. The people of Judah knew that this child that would be born, this son to be given, was not just a hopeful sign. 
He was the sign that God had proven true and righteous and faithful in all of his covenant promises. And this Christmas, I want you to understand that the reason that Jesus came was to prove that you can have a hope assured. The very last line here of chapter 7 says this. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal, 33 out of 43 times in the Bible, it's actually translated as jealousy. We don't like that word in the English language. The reason that God would do all of this was because he's jealous for you. True love always has jealousy attached with it. You want to know how that works out? Try hitting on my wife. I'll show you. Okay? True love always has jealousy attached to it. And God is jealous for you because he loves you so intently. He is so jealous for you that he's not willing to give you up to false gods and false hope. He is willing to come as a baby, grow to a man, die on a cross for your sins and mine, resurrect to prove that he truly is the hope assured, ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf until the day he comes back. This is the God that we serve. He gives us a hope assured. And in fact, it is the only hope that we can be assured of in this life. And so my call to us today, seeing all of this, seeing this promise that Isaiah gave to the people of Judah's day, living in 2016 and looking back with 2020 hindsight and realizing, wow, he was was dead on. We are called to live in a certain way. And that's the last thing I want you guys to write down today is this. We need to live in a way that shows your hope is assured. We need to live in a way that shows our hope is assured. The older I get, the more simple the Bible becomes. It's a book about a good God who asks us the question, do you believe that I'm good? Do you trust me? I'm finding in my own life, harder, it's, it becomes harder and harder to call myself a Christian the more I'm confronted with the fact in certain instances that I don't trust God. Do you trust him? Do you trust him even when everything around you is telling you, uh, this is not going to turn out well? Do you trust him because of the hope, the surety that he has given you in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of his son? We have no excuse living in 2016 not to look back on this and see that God has been proven true in Jesus of Nazareth and to respond in such a way that we step out into the world around us and we show the world around us, I have hope assured. I recognize the brokenness of all the situations around me, but I am assured hope, not just a place in heaven, but a hope for all of creation, the restoration of the world. In Hebrews, one of my favorite verses, I quote this to you guys often, in Hebrews 11, it says, speaking of the men of faith, the believing remnant of old that had no 2020 hindsight, everything was before them. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way or speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land, from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
See, the cities of Israel would be sacked. They would be destroyed and the people would be drug off into exile. But everyone here that was part of the believing remnant, they had a hope assured where they knew that God had prepared for them a city. Maybe this Christmas you're having a hard time with family. God's prepared for you a family. He's prepared for you a family that does not go up and down depending upon the subject discussed. That does not go up and down depending on what happens in the midst of that family gathering. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're struggling with provision this Christmas and Christmas has just brought on extra stress of having to buy presents and take care of things. God has given you a treasure that will last throughout all eternity. One that does not fade, does not spoil. Maybe you're a person who says, I just feel like I have no hope anymore. Christmas is a time that always reminds me that I am stuck in a place in life where I don't want to be, or maybe you're reminded, like me, if you have any form of medical issues, you kind of creak and groan a little bit more in the winter and think, oh, man, this body is breaking down on me. Whatever the problem is around you, realize that you have a hope that is assured, a hope that never fades away, a hope that isn't dismissed because of circumstances. It's there continuing on into the future and it will be until your faith becomes sight in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus calls us to realize a few different things. As we look to this idea of the hope assured and we look to the light that will triumph over darkness, realize that Jesus fulfilled this. Turn with me to a couple of places and then we'll finish up. Matthew 4 verse 12 first. Matthew 4.12, it says this. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because of sin, humanity can only find salvation in one place. If you're a person here today who doesn't know Jesus, and this is all kind of uh, just seems like hope and hope to you, I want you to realize, and I want to be very pointed with you, that there is no hope for you. You cannot have hope in circumstances. Circumstances will always let you down. There's one person in which you can have hope, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that gives you surety of hope for eternity. Because he's the one that brought light into the darkness. And what he calls to those of you who may not know him, he calls for you to repent, to turn from what you find security and confidence in, and to find that security and confidence in him, in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only thing that brings us hope. We can have hope in the circumstances from time to time, sure, but Jesus is the one. He's the one that has brought light. And you'll notice where he went, into the land of Zebulun, into the land of Naphtali, the place that had been most beaten up, most destroyed by invasions. Jesus, the very army of heaven, invaded to show us that we have light in the midst of darkness. Remember when he showed up to the shepherds there in Bethlehem and he said, the angels said that he has brought joy to us for all nations. And what was it that came? There was a host of heavenly angels. That word host is not like a host in a restaurant. 
it means thousands of soldiers, thousands of angels ready to invade at any moment. Jesus there in the garden when he got, got taken, he said, do you not realize that I have legions of angels that I could call to my aid? There is a heavenly army ready to invade and it started the invasion in the same place of these poor people that had known nothing but sadness and brokenness. This is why Jesus lives in a kingdom that's upside down. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. If you are a person that is mourning, don't dismiss the mourning. Don't dismiss the brokenness. Engage it and realize that Jesus has overcome even that which brings you anguish. We look at Jesus and we realize that he has brought victory over all creation. Ephesians tells us that he has broken down the middle wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles and he has made us one in his name. And we are to live in constant gratitude because of this victory that he has brought us into this place. We live in a mindset where We aren't broken apart from other people. We are one and the same with them. He's brought us freedom from the oppressed. In 1 Corinthians 15, he asks sin and death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He stated that we are victorious over things that oppress us, sin and death. We have been under the oppression of sin and darkness from the garden, and Jesus came Jesus came to break the bonds of oppression, the thing that we carry around all the time. Maybe you're a person in here who has unconfessed sin in your life. Maybe you're a person who is weighted down by sin that's done to you. Isaiah said that Jesus came to break the rod of the oppressor, the very thing that pressed down on our our back and keeps us enslaved to it. Jesus came and he took on a burden on his back. He was whipped. He was broken by the oppressor so that he could bring us freedom from those things. And he calls us to live in a life that reflects that, that we no longer live at the whims of our sin, at the whims of our circumstances. But he calls us to live a life that shows that we live according to the whims of our king, our benevolent and loving sovereign. And lastly, we see that God has established through Jesus a king ruling in justice and righteousness. Turn with me to Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 20. being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come because they wanted to see this king riding in on a white horse, destroying their enemies, doing all these things in the physical sense. So they said, when, are you, when is the kingdom of God coming? He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, we're there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You see, what we have to realize this Christmas is that While all these promises have been fulfilled, they have yet to be perfectly fulfilled. Jesus came and he brought light into the darkness. He came and he brought victory over all the brokenness in creation. He came and he brought freedom for the oppressed and justice and righteousness in the midst of his kingdom. But right now in this place in 2016, these things take place not out there in the world, but they take place in the midst of the believing remnant. As you guys walk to different places and interact with different people, not just at Christmas time, but even afterwards. Are you a person that lives in light of these things? 
that lives in a, in a way that shows that you have a hope that cannot be taken. When you walk into that hospital room for the person who is sick, when you talk to someone who's lost a family member or who maybe has had a family member abandon them, when you sit down in those darkest of moments, are you a person that comes and you throw Bible verse after Bible verse at them in a way that says, oh, it'll be okay? Or are you a person that sits down and says, I weep with you, I lament with you, I want to worship God that he has come to destroy the very thing that has hurt you? And I want to tell you that you have a hope that is assured for all eternity, a hope that cannot be taken away. Do we live like this? We, as the believing remnant, must live in a way that shows that our hope is assured and shows that the people in the world can have that same assured hope if they just believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a person sitting here this morning And as you looked at that list of that comparison of the believing remnant and the fickle masses, in the back of your head you thought to yourself, wait a minute, I'm I'm probably more in line with the fickle masses than I am with the believing remnant. What I would ask for you today is to just come and talk to me. Because what that tells you is that you don't have a hope that's assured. You don't trust in Jesus Christ. The measure of a Christian is that you trust at all times in Jesus Christ, knowing that he has given you a hope that is assured. Come talk to me in the back. I'd love to talk to you about what it is to be a Christian and walk with Jesus. Because the reality is is that without Jesus, we have no hope. And that is a stark, stark statement. But it is true. For those of you that are in the believing remnant, though, those of you that live life in the constant expectation of Jesus' return and the constant remembrance of what Jesus did for us, I want you guys to remember today that one day you will stand in front of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that wonderful counselor, that mighty God, that everlasting Father, that Prince of Peace. We're going to cover all those names on Christmas Eve and what they mean. But you're going to stand before this amazing God for the day of resurrection. And no matter what comes your way, even death itself, you have a hope that is assured because God was so jealously in love with you and for you that he sent his son to be born in a manger, to minister in righteousness and justice, to die on a cross, and to resurrect. And because of that, and because of that alone, we can have a hope that is assured. And so this Christmas, as you spend time doing all those amazingly fun things that we all do at Christmas, I want you to remember that the reason the reason that you are celebrating is not because of all the tinsel and all the packages. It's because God the Father has given you a hope that is assured.